17. Okay, so this is the part of the service where we're not going to do any talking. Can you believe it? We're going to see how that goes. I think we can do it. We'll see. So 2 Samuel chapter 1, let's ask God quickly to bless the reading of his word. There is much in this scripture that you have inspired and put together for us, Jesus, God our Father, and the Holy Spirit that surprises us. And so we pray as we hear your word today that we will constantly be surprised by the goodness of your actions and your weaving together, that we will be inspired by the deep truths of what it means to live a life devoted to you, and that we will know your presence, Holy Spirit, as the same presence who is at work and the characters that we read about. In your name we pray. Amen. Does someone have a page number for Second Samuel chapter 1 in the Green Bibles? 215? And, then for, and the first set of page numbers, page 215. So there's a lot that's happened. And just to help us know where we are in the story, we're going to read verse 1 of chapter 1. So after the death of Saul, when David had returned from defeating the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. So he hears that Saul has died. And we jump to verse 17 to hear what he says. David intoned this lamentation over Saul and his son, Jonathan. He ordered that the song of the bow be taught to the people of Judah. It is written in the book of Jashar. He said, Your glory, O Israel, lies slain upon your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor bounteous fields. For the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul anointed with oil no more. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, nor the sword of Saul return empty. Saul and Jonathan... Beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you with crimson and luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan, lies slain upon your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Greatly beloved you were to me. Your love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. This is the word of the Lord. So in this lament that... David offers for Saul and for Jonathan, we hear him doing a number of things. He remembers Saul's place in Israel's story of being this king who was was the glory and the beauty of Israel. 
he cries out and hoping to limit the knowledge of Saul's passing so that their enemy will not celebrate and make a spectacle so that the honor of Saul might be preserved so that the death is not celebrated even by their enemies. David goes on to curse the mountain on which David and Jonathan die in battle, hoping that the land itself will mourn their passing. He praises David and Jonathan's skill in war. He celebrates the spoils that they bring back for the people of Israel, the bounty and the wealth that they were able to bring to God's people. And he recognizes over and over and over that the mighty have fallen, giving the whole people of Israel this song to help them express the grief that they have at losing this leader. And then he privately cannot help but break into song, adding to this national song, this crying out about his friend Jonathan who we heard about their friendship, this intimacy, and this deep commitment that they had with one another last week. David's grief is so strong that he cannot help but add his personal grief to this national grief. And it's this grief for Jonathan that we understand. But it is not just grief for Jonathan that David is expressing in this song. It is grief over the death of his very own enemy, the one who worked relentlessly to take David's life. It is grief over Saul as well that David mourns. One would expect David to dance on his grave. Isn't his passing good news? No more fear for David, and yet we see David expressing such sadness rather than relief from a deep, deep anger. So how did God get David to such a place where he could grieve over his enemies, which is in itself an act of love? How did God get David to such a place that he could fulfill this command that we will hear from Jesus himself to love our enemies. Well, let me tell you what happened between last week's text and this week's text, and you can tell me if you can see the story reveal itself. So between the time that Jonathan makes his covenant with David of friendship, where he gives his clothing and his armor and devotes himself because he's, his soul is knit to David's soul, David and Jonathan are able to reveal together through a plan that Saul really does intend to kill David. And so this is the first opportunity to escape and to flee that David has, to run away. And he does so, and he builds himself a little army. But Saul continuously hunts after David, full of his anger, perpetually angry about this threat to his power that he will kill any person or group that helps David hide from him. Something that David feels great guilt about, the more loss of innocent life, something that could make David angrier about Saul, couldn't it? Doesn't that make you angry, what Saul has done in his pursuit of David? 
And David becomes a mercenary, so he makes a living for his armies by going about raiding different groups of people. And all the while, Saul is depicted as trying to seek God's guidance and presence. And all the while, every time he does so, the text says that he does not hear from the Lord. And we know that that from the previous week's stories, the Spirit of God has gone from David. Sorry, from Saul. Because Saul has turned away from God. And yet counter to that, as Saul is depicted as continuously seeking and not hearing, we see David purposefully and continuously seeking God's guidance for every big decision that he will make about where to invade, who to attack, where to go, when to leave. God speaks to David as David continuously seeks his guidance, and his soldiers see this. So, for instance, in chapter 22, he asks God, should I, should I attack the Philistines? And God says, go. Give them into your hand. And though Saul can't hear from God, he still has this thought that maybe God's on his side. Maybe it's wishful thinking. Maybe it's just relying on what was in the past. Because he invokes God in his search. One might say using God's name in vain for every time someone does help him find where David might be, he invokes God's blessing upon them. The Lord bless you for helping me find David. He even thinks that when David enters Philistine territory, the enemy of the Israelites, that that must be God giving him into Saul's hand because surely If Saul cannot defeat the Philistines, David cannot either. It's his sure demise going to that place. This confidence and this reliance and this assumption that underlies Saul and never gets him to check his anger about David, but allows him to continue in his unfaithfulness. So, there's also this other time. Oh, I'll skip that part. Jonathan and David meet up in the wilderness, and they reiterate their covenant to one another, and Jonathan says, do not be afraid of my father. I know that God is going to make you king, and I know I'll be your second, and I'm okay with that. Do not be afraid. God is with you. I'll be by your side. He encourages David, and off and on, these words become a key encouragement, this friendship again, this way that God weaves this story together. Because twice, David has this opportunity to take Saul out. Once in the cave, remember, when he cuts the cloak. And twice, his soldiers say to him, look, this is the hand of God delivering Saul to you, like he promised to do with your enemies. Pulling back from this example of what they saw when God delivered the Philistines in that battle to David. So they're making their own assumptions about what God is up to. But God is one who answers David. David is the one who seeks guidance from God and not relying on those assumptions. And, and when he cuts the cloak, what does he feel? He feels guilt to have done something to the Lord's anointed one. For he sees in Saul still this one whom God had used and still reigning as king. 
And so even though he, David, was the anointed one, he saw and saw his enemy, this link and this bond between them as the Lord's anointed, as a human being whom God had used. And so he says, no, who am I to take the Lord's anointed? Who am I? No one can do that. No one but God can do that. And then David becomes convinced that he is going to lose his life. Along with knowing that Saul is the anointed one, David says this other really interesting thing when he has this opportunity to take Saul's life, and he says this to, David, to Saul himself across this ravine after sneaking back out of the camp. He says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. David knows that taking a life just for revenge or for your own safety shows the inner disposition of his own heart, which is to not trust in what God will do and come and make into being in his story. That if God has anointed him, he can trust God by being faithful and continuously seeking God's guidance for his actions. He doesn't have to take, like Saul is doing, matters into his own hands. And both times that this happens, Saul seems to recognize his wrongdoing. Saul seems to call out his own, his own sinfulness and praising David for, for him being the rightful one. And yet, both times, Saul is sucked back in by this spirit of fear and anger and cannot let it go. He becomes so desperate, in fact. Are you ready for this? Saul consults a medium so that he can speak with the dead prophet Samuel to try to hear from the Lord because he has not heard from God. He is so desperate that he calls upon the deceased Samuel who, who just reiterates what Samuel has already told him, that because of his unfaithfulness, God has removed this kingdom from his hands and given it to David and then gives him the worst news prophesies the end of Saul's family in battle the next day. And Saul goes to battle with his sons, and it's at that same battle that David's army is not allowed to go because he's been fighting with the Philistines, and the Philistines are becoming concerned about the possibility of David's loyalty, about whether or not he would switch sides. And so they say, no, you can't fight. And then it ends up being that God sends them on this rescue mission because the city where their families were were being overtaken by another enemy. See how this is like quite the story? You can read it for yourself. You've got the book. And so, so David's not on the scene in the battle. He's removed from where Saul and Jonathan meet their end. And they die in battle. And David hears the news. And rather than celebrating at the fall of his enemy, he grieves their death. 
And he doesn't just grieve their death because it's Jonathan and Saul is this add-on. But he grieves his enemy's end and demise. So does this larger story help you understand, perhaps, how God shaped David to be one who was able to grieve his enemies? The things that built this into David were the things of God. David repeats over and over again about Saul, that, this, that Saul is the Lord's anointed, and that that means something. It means something for us to recognize that human beings, because now we are all God's anointed, because in Jesus Christ we are all prophets, priests, and kings. That human beings all play some role in what God is doing in the world. That in every human life there is dignity, even in that of your enemy. And over and over again, we see God speaking with David. David calling to God for wisdom and knowledge. Something that he will forget to do a little later on when, he, when he's in a position of power. But something here in his time of need, in a story that covers years. We're not talking about like a week. We're talking about years that he spent on the run. Where David learned to rely and to trust and the promises of God, and to call upon him in such a way that seeking the will of God was the work of surviving, no matter the cost, even the cost of one's own life. And we see in David that even though he is a man on the run, he is deeply connected to God, and he is deeply connected to other people. He's deeply connected in particular to Jonathan, this friendship, this place where in these relationships he is able to receive and to give compassion. People who feed something besides the anger that might control him, the resentment that might build up in him, the bitterness and the sadness that might rule him. And it's as though we see that counter being lived out in Saul's life. And we see, too, that in this lament, that David is able to see this larger story that's playing out, and he is not just focused on what this news means for him. But he's able to see that this, there's more going on in the world than just this good news that he doesn't have to keep running for his life. That there will be lots of emotions tied to this one event. Not all of which he himself feels or might feel. He is not just driven by self-interest, but he is one who uses this song to teach the nation to express what they themselves might be feeling. Looking to the good of others. When I think about the story of Jesus, I think about how in that st when Jesus enters Jerusalem that final week, the Gospel of Luke describes him as weeping. Weeping with sadness about things that he might have been angry about. About how the world had gotten it wrong. 
He wept because of what the world had become in turning away from God, Yahweh. And yet, it was from that sadness and that grief that Jesus entered Jerusalem to make the greatest sacrifice, acting with compassion, born out of love. Jesus did not come to the world to dance on our graves, but to turn our mourning into dancing and to teach us a new song, to help us connect with not just our anger, but more importantly, with sadness about the broken state of things. Because it's easy for us to be obsessed with being angry rather than to acknowledge and sit with grief. When you watch the news, what do you feel more often? Anger or sadness or both? Because that's what it should be, both. And happiness, there should be good news too because there are good things happening in this world by God's hand. But getting present to the sadness is what will allow us to act with compassion because that is what brings us together. Anger is good, but it does not have the ability to sustain us. And not all anger is good. But when we are connected with knowing what it means to truly lament and to mourn, we will be able to be people who can both say, we care. And families belong together. Who can both be angry at a world that tells us not to care and sad that people are being torn from their children. And both of those can lead us to action. But one of those expresses this deep love and not just mad that our image of what is right and what we belong to as a people is being tarnished. More often than not, Jesus is described as being moved with compassion than he is to be said to be acting in anger. And even the times when he acted in anger, they were for the well-being of people. And it's a lot harder for us to know when our anger is coming from a place of purity and righteousness than God, who does it right every time. And so God has given us this gift of a myriad of emotions and has shown us that love trumps hate. And that Jesus has shown us that acting and understanding and expressing grief is actually a place of compassion. So it's good to be angry. It's good to be sad. It's good to be many things. And it's good to be able to name them and say them and sing them and pray them. And so for our song of response, it's actually a prayer. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to be the one who reads our laments together and then we'll sing 
asking God to hear us. And these are things that we can be both angry and sad about, but I just want us to pay attention to what it feels like to be sad and how that might change your perception or what you want to do about something. So the words to our prayer will be on the screen. to your children praying Lord send your spirit in this place Lord listen to your children praying send us love send us power Why, Lord, must evil seem to get its way? We do confess our sin is deeply shameful, but now the wicked openly are scornful. They mock your name and laugh at our dismay. We know your providential love holds true. Nothing can curse us endlessly with sorrow. Transform, dear Lord, this damage into good. Show us your glory, hidden by this evil. Children praying, Lord, send your spirit in this place. children praying. Send us love, send us power, send us grace. Why, Lord, must they be sentenced, locked away? True, they have wronged their neighbor and have failed you. Yet none of us is innocent and sinless. Only by grace we follow in your way. We plead, repair the brokenness we share. Chastise no more, lest it destroy your creatures. Hear this lament as intercessory prayer. And speak your powerful word to make us hopeful. Lord, listen to your children praying. Lord, send your spirit in this place. Lord, listen to your children praying. Send us love, send power, send us grace. Why, Lord, must they be left to waste away? 
Do you not see how painfully they suffer? Could you not change the curse of this disaster? Amaze us by your mighty sovereignty. We plead. Repair the brokenness we share. Chastise no more, lest it destroy your creatures. Hear this lament as intercessory prayer. And speak your powerful word to make us hopeful. Lord, listen to your children praying. Lord, send your spirit in this place. Lord, listen to your children praying. Send us love, send us power. Send us grace. Why, Lord, must broken vows cut like a knife? How can one wedded body break in pieces? We have all failed at being pure and faithful. Only by grace we keep our solemn vows. We plead. Repair the brokenness we share. Chastise no more, lest it destroy your creatures. Hear this lament as intercessory prayer. And speak your powerful word to make us hopeful. Lord, listen to your children praying. Send our spirit in this place. Lord, listen to your children praying. Send us love, send us power, send us grace. Why, Lord? Did you abruptly take them home? Could you not wait to summon them before you? Why must we feel the sting of death's old cruelty? Come quickly, Lord, do not leave us alone. We plead. Repair the brokenness we share. Chastise no more, lest it destroy your creatures. Hear this lament as intercessory prayer and speak your powerful word to make us hopeful. Lord, listen to your children praying. Lord, send your spirit in this place. Send us love, send us power, send us grace.
all God's people said,